following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, you can turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 6 today. And last Sunday, uh, we uh, had the opportunity to look at uh, what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer in verses uh, 9 through 13. And uh, let's pick up, I'd like, we're going to be in verses 14 through 18 today, but for the sake of context, I'd like to begin reading in verse 9. So Jesus says, in this manner, therefore, pray, <clears throat> our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, how many of you in this room love a good bargain? You know, some of you, you love to bargain hunt. You know, so you're at Target, and, and, and there is this incredible deal. And, and you don't need the item, but, but you have to buy it because it is such an incredible deal. You know, and so some of you, you love that. I mean, you, you can't resist that, and uh, you, you can't pass up a good bargain, even though you're spending money that could just stay in your bank account. Hey, you know, one of the bargains that, that we oftentimes love is, is when there is a deal where you get two for the price of one. That's a great bargain, isn't it? You know, because, because your money's going twice as far and, and you're getting twice as much product as you normally would get. And so two for the price of one is an, is an awesome deal. And we all love uh, that, that deal. So, so I am sure today that you will be excited to hear that in this sermon today, in this service today, you are going to get two sermons for the price of attending one service. <laughs> now, I know you all love Jesus. You all love God's Word. And, and, so, and so you are excited to get as much of God's Word as you possibly can. Well, well, it's okay if you're a little bit nervous about me saying that I'm going to preach two sermons this morning, uh, because that sounds like it could take a really long time. And, um, and, and I promise you that, that, that we will uh, stay right around the normal range of time that, that, that I preach. Now, the reason I, I say that and the reason I'm doing that today is that verses 14 and 15 and verses 16 through 18 are, are pretty distinct sections. There's, there's not really a, a lot of overlap and meaning between forgiveness and, and fasting. Uh, but, but I feel like, uh, especially considering how much ground we've already covered in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that, that they don't really justify two sermons uh, to uh, full-length sermons, and so this morning uh, we're going to combine them into one. So, so you get two for the price of one, all right? Great deal today. 
So, so with that said, uh, let's jump into sermon number one, so to speak, in, in verses 14 through 15, where Jesus challenges us to forgive the way God forgave you. Now, now remember, of course, last Sunday, we, we looked at the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13. And so we saw there that Jesus lists out six prayer requests. And the fifth prayer request comes in verse 12. Jesus says that, that we are to pray to the Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So, so we talked last Sunday about the first part of that request. That Jesus says that even after I am born again, that that I will sin against God, and and when I sin, I need to ask God to forgive me for my debt or or my sin against his will. And then Jesus adds a, a fascinating second line. He says we are to pray that God would forgive us as we forgive our debtors. So Jesus says that you are only justified to ask God to forgive you, to extend mercy to you as you extend the same mercy to other people. So it is the height of hypocrisy, the height of hypocrisy to plead for God's mercy. God, please forgive me for what I have done when you refuse to to show the same mercy to someone else. But, Jesus says, assuming that that you are merciful and and that you extend mercy to other people, you should ask God for mercy, expecting to receive it. Now, now that assumption that that, that I am showing mercy is so important that, that Jesus follows in verses 14 and 15 by expanding on that idea. And don't miss the fact that of, of all the things that are included in the Lord's Prayer, this is the only item that, that Jesus decides warrants some sort of explanation. So Jesus really wanted to grasp just how important it is that you forgive others the way you want God to forgive you. And, and remember, as well, I think it's important to say that this is not the first time that, that, that reconciliation, peacemaking, um, amending bro- broken relationships has come up in the sermon. You know, if you look over at chapter 5, the Beatitudes, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So, so God said in the Beatitudes that God's blessing, God's favor, God's approval rests on the one who is merciful. And if you are merciful towards other people, you can expect the mercy of God towards you. So God expects us to be merciful. Uh, the next, uh, excuse me, verse 9, the, 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 um, I can't remember the count. Uh, it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, so a couple of the Beatitudes bring up this issue of relationships. And then chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, also said that we must aggressively uh, reconcile broken relationships. That if you sin against someone, You know, it's not your job to just sweep it under the rug and assume that they're going to be gracious, that that you go and you mend that broken fence. And in fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that you must pursue reconciliation before worshiping God. So, So Jesus has consistently taught that loving my neighbor 
by making my rights wrong, my wrongs right, and by forgiving others of their wrongs is a vital aspect of the true righteousness that is at the heart of the sermon. So I'll say again, as I've said multiple times you know, in this series, God, God will not let us isolate our relationship with God from our relationships with people. Now, you cannot say, I love Jesus. I want to be close to Jesus and love Jesus. And then say, yeah, but I don't like this guy over here and I'm not going to do anything with him and ignore him. It, it all goes together. And your relationship to people is fundamental to your relationship with God. And, 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 but all of this raises three very important questions as we jump now to verses 14 and 15. So, so I got three questions I want to ask as we work our way through these verses. And the first question is, well, what exactly is at stake in, in verses of 14 and 15 of chapter 6? Now, now, this is an important question because for those of us who are committed to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is, which is essential, that is the gospel, then verses 14 and 15 can sound really startling, right? Because it sounds like Jesus is saying that forgiving other people merits or it earns the forgiveness of God. And of course, we know that that cannot be what Jesus means because of verses such as Ephesians 1, verse 7, which says that in Him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. So, so God is very clear, isn't He? That, that, that God's forgiveness of me is not fundamentally rooted in my forgiveness of other people. It is rooted in, in, in the redemption that Jesus provided when He bore my sins in His body on the cross. So salvation, the forgiveness of God, is rooted in Christ. It is not rooted in anything in me. So, so I want to emphasize that fact because, because if you read verses 14 and 15, and you think, well, surely God's going to let me into heaven someday because I'm a good person. I'm nice to people. I, I, I'm not a jerk. Then, then, then understand that that will not merit you a place in heaven. No, we only receive forgiveness from God through Christ. So if you have never repented of your sins and you have never put your faith in, in Christ alone for salvation, then, then today you need to stop trusting in yourself. Recognize that you are a sinner who is hopelessly lost in your own righteousness and, and cast yourself wholly and completely on what Jesus did on the cross. And so if you've never done that before, then, then, then you need to understand that today, first and foremost, that you need to be saved and you need to repent and believe on Jesus. So, so, so but that being said, and, and assuming that that is the case, well, what exactly is at stake in verses 14 and 15? And the answer, uh, as we said last week, is intimate fellowship with God. So, so in other words, when Jesus says, for example, in verse 14, that if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. He's not saying that, that your salvation is dependent on, on your forgiveness. No, he is saying that, 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 our, our, that, our, that God's relational nearness 
that, that my closeness to God, my, 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 my intimacy with Him is, is tied to this fact of how I forgive other people. And Jesus is saying, you know, we talked last week about, you know, you think of a parent-child relationship. That, that my kids will always be my kids no matter what they do and no matter what I do. And I will always love them no matter what they do. But we're not always on good terms when I sin against them or when they sin against me. And it's the same with God. That that when I am walking in rebellion against His will, I I do not have close fellowship with God. And, And so Jesus is saying that you cannot expect God, though, to forgive your sins and draw near to you when you refuse to forgive others and draw near to them. You know, so you can say all you want, I love God, I love Jesus, I love to come to church. But Jesus says, if you refuse to forgive, we have a problem. God says we have a problem. And it will not be resolved until you deal with your bitterness. So if you came into church today, you know, you're looking swell, you're looking like you should be at church, and you sang loud and, and really enjoyed the worship, And yet you are harboring bitterness and resentment towards another individual. You will not pursue reconciliation. You will not forgive them of their sin. Then Jesus says that he is not near to you. And and he will not forgive and restore until you deal with that. And and frankly, you're being just as hypocritical as the guys that Jesus goes after in verses 2, 5, and 16. Now, Now, that might sound really strong. But Jesus could not be clear. He says in verse 15, If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So so we all need to feel the urgency of that. And and, and do our part to seek reconciliation, to to be merciful as God has forgiven us. Now, now you might hear that and think, well, that's really strong. So, So why is God that strong about it? I mean, why does God care that much about forgiveness? And um, you might hear all this stuff and say, well, well, doesn't, I mean, doesn't Jesus understand how horrible my parents were to me? I mean, doesn't he understand how horrible my ex was? Doesn't he understand how, how mean my family is and how mean my boss is? But I, I have rights. I deserve to be treated well. And that, peop- that person hurt me. So so I have a right to be bitter. I have a right to be happy. Isn't that how our society generally thinks? That's very normal. We are perfectly comfortable with with bitterness and resentment if we think it is justified. But not Jesus. The reason why forgiveness is essential for a Christian is because forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of gospel transformation. Think about this, folks. Think about how fundamental forgiveness is to our faith. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, speaking of Jesus, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, or, or, or really that would be like a ledger of debt 
He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Aren't you thankful for those verses? That that we owe God an infinite debt, and, and yet when Jesus died on the cross, it was like our debt ledger was hanging there over His head. And He took it out of the way. He wiped it clean. And so, forgiveness is my only hope. And it is the foundation of my relationship with God. And in light of that, Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So God could not be any clearer. I am responsible to forgive other way, other, other people the same way that I have been forgiven. So, so if you're struggling to forgive someone, then, then what you need to ask yourself is, is, how did God forgive me? Where was I apart from the forgiveness of God? And, and how can I forgive like Christ? And then you make a choice that by the grace of God, I will forgive. I will extend the same mercy that I have received. Now, I recognize that oftentimes that is easier said than done. I mean, some of you have have endured incredible hurt at the hands of of other people. An ex-spouse, a parent, a child, a boss. And some of you, this side of death will never escape the consequences of how someone else has sinned against you. So I recognize that. And, and, but, but, but God knows that. And God knows that. But, but He still expects you, by, by His grace, to work to show to others the same grace that He has shown to you. And of course, His Word promises that His grace is sufficient to do so. And, and so the first step I'd say, that, that if you're struggling to forgive someone else, is to spend less time focusing on how someone has sinned against you and more time focusing on how you have sinned against God. You have, you have violated God's will far beyond how anyone has sinned against you. And when you appreciate the infinite debt that God has forgiven you if you are in Christ, then how can you refuse to extend the same forgiveness to others? So folks, forgiveness matters to God. It is at the heart of the gospel. Forgiveness is my only hope, and therefore it is at the heart of the gospel transformation that God expects of his people. And then the third question we need to answer is how do we forgive? How do we forgive? So, so, so what does this actually look like? And going back to Ephesians 4.32, the answer is, is that I am to forgive the way God forgave me. And, and what is that like? I believe the parable of the prodigal son gives us a wonderful example of of what the forgiveness of God really is. As you think about what the prodigal did to his father, I mean, he he hurt his father dearly. He ran away. He was a punk. He was a jerk. He was arrogant. He wasted all this money, rejected everything that his dad had said. But when that son repented and he came back to his father, His father's hurt was overwhelmed with love and with gladness that his son had returned. And isn't it incredible to think that that, that I 
before I was saved, was that prodigal. I was dead in sin. And when I came to God in repentance, he gladly received me. He rejoiced at my repentance. And Ephesians 4.32 says that I need to pursue the same love, kindness, and compassion that drove Christ or drove the Heavenly Father to forgive me. And that I need to be just as eager to forgive when other people repent of their sin and seek restoration. Now, now I do want to emphasize that word repentance. Because biblical forgiveness does not mean that I dismiss sin. All right? And that is important. So, so sometimes I think we are too quick to just say, it's okay, it's no big deal. You know, so someone does something that they've done 50 times and they say, I'm sorry, and we just sweep it under the rug, move on. And, and we do need to slow down at times, right? And we need to make sure that people appreciate the gravity of their sin, that they have dealt with what it really is. Because love is more concerned about helping people change than faking peace. And sometimes we just want to yeah, you know, brush it away, forget it's there, go on with life because that's more comfortable for me and it's more comfortable for you. And I want to emphasize that that is not what Jesus is telling us to do. No, no repentance is important. But when people do repent like the prodigal did, we should rejoice just as his father did. And we should let go of hurt and bitterness and resentment. And we should welcome that person into fellowship. Now, and I'd also qualify that by saying that that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for sin or, or, or that you rem- immediately restore all your trust. You know, if someone stole your money, you're probably not going to leave your wallet laying around, at least for a time. And of course, God oftentimes calls us to endure the consequences of our sin, even as he forgives. So, so, so consequences are not contrary to forgiveness. But, but as someone who has been forgiven an infinite debt, I must always remember that I have no right to withhold forgiveness. And I would just add this too, that even if that person never repents, and someone might have done some horrible sin against you, and they never uh, repent of that sin or, or seek to make it right in the least. But, but even then, you, you have no right to hold on to bitterness and resentment. I mean, they, those things are a denial of the grace that you have received, and bitterness will destroy you like few things. I mean, bitterness skews your perspective about everything, it eats you up, and it hurts you a whole lot more than it hurts anyone else. So, so I know that some of you have endured some terrible pain at the hands of sinners. And again, you may never fully escape the consequences of, of how those people have hurt you. But do not let Satan do further damage to your soul and to your joy in Christ by harboring bitterness and resentment. Now, now if you say, Pastor, I'm not bitter, you're bitter. And we've all seen that, right? I mean, I've had people furiously deny their bitterness. So if if the scab, if, if the slightest pull makes that scab bleed, then you have not put it aside. And bitterness is a terrible cancer. So so let go of it and focus your attention on God's marvelous grace and by His grace, forgive the way God forgave you.
So, so that's sermon number one. And now let's jump to sermon number two. And the message of verses 16 through 18 is fast for God, not for men. It's been a while since we read verses 16 through 18, so let's read them again. Verse 16 says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, now hopefully when I read those verses, you immediately recognize uh, the similarity in language between what Jesus says here and what he already said in verses 1 through 4 about giving and what he also said in verses 5 through 8 about prayer. So, so Jesus, for the third time in this section of the sermon, uh, condemns the hypocrites of the Jewish religion for, for using a foundational aspect of Jewish piety, a good foundation of Jewish piety, as a means not of honoring God, but as a means of promoting themselves. But, but of these three acts of piety, giving, prayer, and fasting, uh, fasting is probably the one that we are the least familiar with. So, so let's talk just a little bit this morning about the significance of fasting, because I would venture to guess that we as American Christians don't fast nearly as much as, as especially the Christians in the first century and probably other ages as well. And, and I will tell you up front that, that I have, have never excelled in the discipline of fasting. This is not my strong suit. So I love food, and I always am thinking about food. You know, some of you, I, I'll hear people at times say, man, you know, I was so busy I forgot to eat. I have no idea what that's like, because I never forget to eat. So, so this is not uh, uh, where I am, a, it's not where I'm a model. Uh, I'm challenging myself as much as I am challenging anyone else today. Uh, but but and, and like I said, I, I think my, my guess would be that, that, that we as a whole, as Christians in our day, do not do this as much as people in the past. But, but fasting was very important uh, within the Jewish religion. Now, now it's true that the Old Testament only required one fast in the nation of Israel. That was on the Day of Atonement. So, so the tenth day of the seventh month, when the, when, the, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, the whole nation was to take a fast that day. But, but other than that, you see a number of times in the Old Testament where, where the people of Israel would commonly fast. It, it was a, a relatively normal part of, of their spiritual discipline. And, um, and by the time that, uh, that Jesus comes around, uh, it had become a, a very important part of, of Pharisaical religion. In fact, the Pharisees, as a whole, uh, fasted every Monday and every Friday. Can you imagine that? Two days of every week, fasting. Now, now Jesus does not say that, that we need to fast uh, that often. But, but, he, but don't miss the fact that verse 16 assumes that Jesus' disciples will fast, right? He doesn't say, if you fast. He says, again, when you fast. And in verse 17, when you fast. So, so cl Jesus clearly sees this as important. But, but you might wonder, well, why? I mean, why, why do I fast? What, what's the point of that? Well, well, keep your place here, but turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Because in Matthew 9, a Jesus tells us a little bit more about the fundamental purpose of fasting. So, so fasting is not, at least biblically, primarily about your health. 
or losing weight or something like that. No, no, it has a very clear spiritual significance. So, so Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So so you can see there uh, that that John's disciples come to Jesus, and and they are upset. That that they are fasting all the time like the Pharisees do, but, but Jesus' disciples apparently are not fasting at all. And that doesn't make sense to them. And Jesus interestingly replies to them that, that there is no reason for his disciples to fast because the bridegroom, Jesus, is with them. But, so, so, so he says there very clearly that, that, that the presence of Jesus eliminates the need to fast. However, when Jesus is gone, when he ascends to heaven, the purpose of fasting will resume. And he says that when that day comes, they will fast. So so what Jesus says there is very instructive for for understanding the purpose for fasting. So specifically, again, there's no reason to fast when when Jesus is present, but when he is gone, that need will come. And and that tells us that fasting is fundamentally an expression of the fact that that, that I desire God's presence. It is about the presence of God. And, And when I fast, it is a declaration that I long for that I desire the nearness of God. So, so in other words, a fasting is intended to declare that I desire and I need God's presence and help more than I need my necessary food. I think we could also add uh, that, that, that fasting is a way to sharpen my conviction. As Jesus said after his 40-day fast at the outset of his ministry, In Matthew 4, verse 4, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So so fasting is a way to remind myself and convince myself that that I need God more than I need bread. So, So when life is comfortable, it is very easy to begin believing that, that I have all that I need that I've got this, I can take care of it. And so fasting is a way to remember that I need Him. So uh, I'll add this too, that as such, you know, while fasting is generally about uh, withstanding from, from food, uh, there are other kinds of fasts. So, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, uh, talks about married couples abstaining from, uh, from, from having sex so that they can give themselves to prayer. So, so you could take Uh, Other forms of fast, basically any pleasure that that you deny to give yourself more more clearly to God uh, would be legitimate. But whatever the point is, whatever the fast is, the point is, is to sharpen your dependence on God and to declare your need for his presence and his grace. And and you know, as I've worked through this sermon this week, I've been reminded that, 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 that I need to do this more. And, and, and you probably do as well. But because we enjoy so much abundance in this nation. We have more food than we know what to do with. We throw away a lot of food. 
And, and, and even when we have a health need, or even a spiritual need, we, we are so independent, we, we are so confident in ourselves that, that our first impulse is not to look to God. Our first impulse is to look to modern technology or, or to look to modern methods and strategies. And we are so skilled at, at creating success that oftentimes, when, it's really, when we're really honest with ourselves, we leave very little room for needing God or, or needing His grace and help. So, so fasting is a great reminder of how weak I am and how desperately I need him. It's interesting to, to add as well that, that there are two instances in the book of Acts where, where fasting is mentioned in, in chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, and in chapter 14, verse 23. And both fasts were accompanied by, by God's clear wisdom and direction. So in Acts 13, the, 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 the leaders at Antioch are praying, and God reveals that Paul and Barnabas are to go serve as missionaries. Acts 14, they are fasting as they seek to appoint elders in the church. So, so, so fasting is a way to declare as well my need for God's wisdom. So, so you're coming up on some big decision. You need discernment. Now, a, a fast is a way to say, Lord, give me direction. Help me know what to do. Fix this problem in a way that I can't. So, so, so when you are facing a big need, you're facing a big decision, you're feeling spiritually dry, don't just scheme and work to fix it. No, give yourself to fasting and prayer. And all of us need to take advantage of, of this important discipline that Jesus has given to us. So, so fasting can be a great aid to godliness, uh, but sadly, uh, verse 16 tells us, that the Pharisees, or the hypocrites, had, had abused it. And so, uh, verse 16, again, uh, turning back uh, to Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus confronts uh, the hypocrites for, for turning this wonderful spiritual discipline into a theatrical production that was all about their image. So just as we saw with giving and prayer, they had taken a good spiritual discipline and they had turned it into a way to make sure that everyone noticed them and everyone praised them. But of course, it's a little more difficult to stand out when you fast than when you give or you pray, because giving and praying are doing things. Fasting is just simply not doing something. So, so they had to get a little more creative, you know, to, to make it known that they were fasting. And so Jesus says that they would disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. So, so this could be, you know, just for one hand, on the one hand, just as simple as them, you know, limping around, you know, looking forlorn, exhausted. You know, have you ever seen kids do this? You know, they, they stub their toe, and, and they, you know, they just put on this incredible theatrical production, and, the, you know, and they're, they're, they've got the tears flowing, and, and they're making as much noise and scene as possible, and they're dragging their leg like their bones are sticking out. And you're like, dude, you just stubbed your toe. And similarly, we can imagine these hypocrites making, you know, walking around town, making sure everyone saw how, how hungry they were and how miserable they were as they fasted. And probably some of them went well beyond this. So, so he mentions there that they disfigure their faces. And so uh, it, was, uh, it was a known fact that, that oftentimes people, if they were going to fast, they would not bathe or they would not shave. 
And in fact, at times, they would even take ash and rub ash all over their faces. And that's how they would disfigure themselves. So, so they looked and they smelled, you know, like, like little kids that had been playing out in the dirt for hours. Now, now that's not typically a smell or a look that we appreciate. But, uh, but apparently, some of the Jews found it impressive if it was a reflection of the fact that you were fasting. So these hypocrites would go to tremendous lengths to turn fasting into a religious show. And, and, and it did get them some praise. It, it did earn them some approval from people. Now, Jesus says in verse 16, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, now as I've said with, with, with the previous paragraphs, that is not something that, that we naturally view as a small thing. You know, he's talking there about the approval and praise of men. Because we all want praise and respect. The pride of life is deeply embedded in all of us. So we all want people to respect us and look up to us. And just think, for example, of how many thousands of dollars some people spend on their wardrobe, their hair, their nails. They spend massive amounts of money because they want people to respect them. They want to stand out in the crowd and earn a few oohs and ahs. So, so, so the praise of men is a big deal to us. And yet when you compare the praise of men with the blessing of God's approval, God's favor, God's eternal reward, then the praise of a few fickle people all of a sudden looks very small. And therefore, once again, that conclusion to verse 16 is intended to have a very empty ring. If you fast for the praise of men, ah, you, a few people clapped. Good for you. So Christian, it may be tempting to let image and appearance drive not just fasting, but, but every form of your Christianity and your participation in the church. So, so let me remind you that, that yes, we've got some great people in this church. And you probably want them to like you. But don't ever sacrifice the praise of God for the praise of people. Because we can't compare. And nothing that we can give you can compare to the reward of Christ. So minister for God, not for people. And Jesus drives this home in verses 17 and 18, which I'm going to call the heart of fasting. And so in these two verses, uh, Jesus urges those who fast to take the opposite approach of the hypocrites. So, so rather than taking steps to actively draw attention to themselves, Jesus says take steps to actively hide the fact that you are fasting. So, so he says there in verse, seven, or excuse me, verse 17, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. Now, 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 anointing your head, washing your face, those would be uh, normal practices of Jewish hygiene. They're, they're not elaborate, so, so they live in a dry climate, and so they would put oil on their head and on their skin to, to, to deal with dryness and as well as something of a perfume. And, and, and washing your face is always a good thing, you know, and a pretty normal thing, and especially if you work and sweat in a dusty, dry climate like, like Israel, then it's a good thing to wash your face when, when, you, get, when you come in at night. So, so Jesus says that when you are going to fast, do the normal things that you would do to look like you normally do. 
Why? So that you do not appear to men to be fasting. So rather than showcasing your fast, Jesus says you should hide it. Now, I want to be clear that Jesus does not mean that no one anywhere can ever know that you are fasting. All right, because, uh, for example, uh, in in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, you you see a group of church leaders fasting together. And in the Old Testament, Ezra and Esther both called for national fasts. So so it's not like, if if anyone ever knows that I fasted, poof, you know, my eternal reward just kind of goes out into smithereens. So, so, and, and I add to that then that it's okay for a group of believers, it's okay for a church to, to fast together. So, so the issue is not that people know you're fasting, the issue is your motive for the fast. And Jesus knows that all of us are tempted with the pride of life. So therefore, he is simply saying that you need to take active and intentional steps to counteract that impulse in your heart to serve for the praise of men by going in the opposite direction. So help, you keep, help yourself keep your focus on the Lord by, by, by taking steps to not do it in a way that seeks the praise of men. You know, I'm really thankful for the servants that God has given us in our church that, that serve in a lot of ways this way. Now, there are people who are up here throughout the week cutting the grass, pulling weeds, cutting bushes, cleaning the building, doing secretarial work, and, and most, most people, most of you probably have no idea what they're doing, how many hours they're investing. There's other people in our church who, who quietly serve a, the people of the body by making meals, watching kids, um, you know, sending notes of encouragement, praying, maybe even fasting for a brother or sister in Christ. And again, they don't demand attention. They just see opportunities to serve. And because they love Christ and love people, they take it. And folks, that's godliness. And that's the kind of service that that Jesus desires. And 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 even if no one notices, even if, if no one ever sees, no one ever appreciates You never get any earthly reward for that act of love and service to Christ. What does Jesus say at the end of verse 18? He says, your father who is in the secret place will reward you. The heavenly father sees. He sees everything that you do. He sees every act of love. He sees every sacrifice. He sees every quiet prayer. And he promises that he will reward you. And of course, his reward is worth infinitely more than the praise of a few people. So so we need to fast and we need to serve in the the manner that Jesus prescribes for his glory and for his honor. So so this morning, we've looked at two fairly distinct sections of Scripture. And at first glance, there's not much of a connection between forgiveness on the one hand and fasting on the other. But, But really, as with the entire Sermon on the Mount, these sections are bound together by, by the true righteousness that Jesus desires for his disciples. And if, if anything has been clear in the Sermon on the Mount, it's that Jesus is not interested in the hypocritical show of these Pharisees. No, he is interested in true righteousness. 
that transforms me from the inside out. So, so I want to challenge you by, by God's grace to do that this week with these two particular issues. And maybe you're sitting there today and there is someone with whom you know you have a broken relationship. And you know that you have not done everything in your power. Romans 12 says, as much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. So you know that you have not done as much as lies within you to be at peace. So by God's grace, call someone up. Forgive. If you have sinned against someone, make it right. Because loving your neighbor is essential to loving God. And, and or, or, or as well, maybe this week you need to commit to spending a day earnestly seeking the Lord through fasting and prayer. You look at your heart and, and your heart is so overwhelmed with the stuff of this world that your desire for God is like this big. And maybe you need to take a day and, and just fast so, so that your heart is, is attuned more to Christ. Maybe you're facing some big decision. Maybe you're facing some major challenge. Maybe you are burdened about some spiritual need. And instead of just scheming and trying to fix it, do everything you can to solve it, fast. Give a day where you will seek the Lord. And every time your stomach begins to turn, maybe even every time that your head begins to feel a little bit light, instead of running to the refrigerator, get on your knees and seek the Lord. So folks, let's all of us manifest the true righteousness of our Savior in just day-to-day life in a way that pleases Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the timely instructions in these verses. And Father, uh, we recognize uh, that, that these are hard things. These are not easy things. And so I pray that You'd give us grace to believe your word, and to obey what you have said. And Lord, I pray that you would produce in us a true righteousness that is a reflection of the grace of God at work in us. And Lord, may we not be content with anything else. And so convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Help us, Lord, to build each other up as we strive to obey and please you. In Christ's name, amen.